0: You're listening to the Together in Literacy podcast, a podcast for educators, families, and advocates that connects the research of reading, dyslexia awareness, and the whole child. We're your hosts,
1: Casey Harrison and Emily Gibbons. As two literacy dyslexia specialists, we've come together to talk about literacy, dyslexia, and the connection to the social-emotional impact that it has on our students, their families, and the educators who serve
0: them. We welcome you to join us on this exciting and educational journey into dyslexia as we come together in literacy. Please
1: be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us at
0: www.togetherinliteracy.com. Thank you for joining us today. Let's get started. Well, hello everyone. Welcome to the Together in Literacy podcast. We are in season two, episode six, and this episode is called Q and A about OJ. And before we get into that, first of all, hi Casey. Hi Emily. <laughs> Casey just came back from the Ida
1: conference.
0: I did. Texas. It was
1: so fun. And I actually got to meet quite a few listeners. So that was great.
0: So I'm a little jealous because she got to go and, and I was on the soccer field watching soccer games, but that's okay. That's all good. Next time. all soccer all the time in my house. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so let's hear some feedback today. We hear about, um, from one, particular listener, love the episode about effectively working with older students with dyslexia. Even though I have an eight-year-old, it was great info for the years to come. I also loved the recommendation on Skybrary app. We enjoyed it all morning long. Well, thank you so much for that feedback. We love hearing from our listeners. We encourage you, please, go on there and leave us a rating and give us some feedback and we would love to share it on a future episode. We really enjoyed sharing information about working with older students and I believe We have one more in the works, um, but we had two episodes at this point from where we're recording um, so far. So just, you can go back and listen to those and they're both in season two. And yes, the Skyberry app was one. We just loved my own children. Really enjoy that. All right. So Casey's going to (laughs) kick it off today. They do. That's a great app. And yes, it was so
1: fun at the IDA conference. I got to connect with a lot of our listeners, which was fabulous. So I know. Today, um, as you may know, Emily and I, we are both um, structured literacy dyslexia specialists, and we are trained in Orton-Gillingham and Orton-Gillingham-based programs. And so today we're going to address some common questions that we see being asked regarding OG. And so we're really going to be speaking from the perspective of interventionists who work with the dyslexia population, but that we understand OG-based instruction can be supported also in the typical or general classroom setting. So you may have heard about OG or Orton-Gillingham, but you may not know that Dr. Orton and Anna Gillingham's principles include both the academic and the emotional wellness of a child. And in addition, their guiding principles are not a program, but an approach. So today we are going to be digging into some of those misunderstandings that are often shared in social media platforms and in conversations that
0: are surrounding this very well-researched approach. Yes, and if you'd like to dig in further to learn more about Dr. Orton and Anna Gillingham's work, we had two episodes back-to-back in season one, How Orton Gillingham Supports. The social and emotional well being of children, and of course, our dyslexia population, but it also dove into the principles of Orton Gillingham, namely with a term we called the Ortonian prescription. Yes. So, yes, we thought we would just take the opportunity to answer some questions that we commonly hear Mm -hmm. and see. And I think this is a really, really great opportunity for Casey and I to just have a conversation with all of you so that we can. Really clear up anything that feels like, hmm, I heard one thing, but then I heard something else. So we're going to try and address the most common questions. We've got nine of them. (laughs) (laughs) So we can't wait. All right, the number one is, is there just one training for Orton-Gillingham that everyone goes to to become trained? How do you get trained? And does it matter if there's a practicum? So let's talk about that. Is there just one training that everybody goes to when they're trained in Orton Gillingham? No, (laughs) (laughs) there is not. If you go to the International Dyslexia Association's website and check out their list, and we can include this link in the show notes Mm -hmm. of their approved structured literacy programs for training that may be in the Orton Gillingham approach, you'll find a list of different organizations that are accredited and that are approved to provide Orton-Gillingham training like uh, Orton-Gillingham Academy. Okay. Like with, where, with Alta, with Scottish Wright and with well, Wilson and we have. Wilson. Yeah. 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 Different. So we've got several on there that are approved and accredited by so ida sort of gives their sort of seal of approval like these are following the structured literacy standards and the ida has actually a big document listing all their knowledge and practice standards for structured literacy so if you're wondering you can definitely go there and find that so Not everybody goes to the same organization. People sometimes people just choose an overview training that may be appropriate. Maybe if you're a classroom educator and you're just sort of looking to see how you can incorporate OG into the general classroom setting. Whereas with some other Orton-Gillingham trainings, they're much more in depth. They're sometimes years long. They incorporate uh, supervised practicums where you have requirements to fulfill with specific hours that you'll need to complete in order to finish the program. One of my first Orton-Gillingham trainings was through Mass General Hospital trainers. And there were some very extensive exams, including a final and made my palms sweat. (laughs) That had a pretty extensive practicum. And then when I went on further to the certified level, that had a much lengthier practicum. So it really is going to depend where you get trained. And there are even some online trainings. So, which weren't around at all when Casey and I first got trained. I don't know about you, Casey, not me. No, I know. Um, I actually have a a therapist
1: level cohort online training that is a two-year program. Yeah, Yeah, I love this question. And I think it's such an important one. And it always brings me back to when people ask how Emily and I met because Emily and I were trained- both through Orton-Gillingham based <laughs> programs but in very different ways. And so through our conversations we still have because it's Orton-Gillingham based at the root we are the same. We have the same knowledge, we have the same understanding and the same principles that we follow even if we may use different programs to put those into place. And so as Emily said, right there is not one training, so we're trained in different programs and we went through different trainings, but we're both Orton-Gillingham trained. And then I think it's important to note that as Emily said, right, we have different levels or different layers of training that can occur. So, you know, if we have fellow or therapist level training, that is, that's going to look very different than a five-day classroom training. And so I think it really does depend on, on what it is that you need at this point in time to work with your students, what your goals are, and things like that. But it is important to know that there's not just one OG training. And I think that kind of leads us into the second big question that we often hear, Emily, which is Is Orton Gillingham a program? And I hear this a lot where people will say OG oh, and they're talking about a program, but Orton Gillingham or OG is a it's a it's an approach and there is no one that owns OG and uh, the name OG and so that can be kind of confusing I think for people that are kind of entering into the structured literacy world or dyslexia world to understand that
0: right and because it's not an a program and it's an approach there are things that we all have in common with it but there are also some differences right so the thing we all share in common is that we follow orton gillingham principles Mm -hmm. that's really what uh ties us all together right and those are very very important that's at the core Uh, Everything we do with Orton Gillingham. But since we, it's not a program, then that will lead us into ne- the next question Do we all follow the same progression and scope and sequence and so forth? So we'll get into that in just a minute. But I just want to distinguish something that since Orton Gillingham is an approach and it's not a program, what I'd like to just add to that is that there are Orton Gillingham based programs mm-hmm. that are based off of the principles of OG. Right. And so for instance, Wilson is one of the Orton-Gillingham based programs that some people use. All right. So because OG is an approach, all right? The next question is a really important one. And that is, is there one scope and sequence or progression that everyone follows in OG? And this is, wildly misunderstood, unfortunately, yeah. because there are a lot of people that think everybody must follow lockstep the same scope and sequence or progression that everyone follows in OG. And truly that's not the case because it will vary on a few things. First of all, it's going to vary on where you got trained. So the different organizations may have different suggested suggested i'd like to just add that orders Mm -hmm. that you follow for your students but because this is an approach and because we're we are at the heart of everything trying to be prescriptive and diagnostic we do not at the intervention or therapy level lock into one scope and sequence for every kid and why was that Casey? because we are diagnostic and prescriptive yeah 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 so when we're looking at the needs of that child in front of us, and if we always follow that same order for everybody, that is not being prescriptive and diagnostic. That's just following one order for everybody. You have to adjust. And it's, once again, you probably heard me say that a lot. It depends, but mm-hmm. there are is there a suggested order? Sure, there is, but it's going to vary. From one program to the next, and or one training to another, there is one Orton-Gillingham-based program that pace may be actually a little too quick for some kids, versus using more of a prescriptive and diagnostic approach where we're really working towards mastery. So right. it really is going to depend, Casey.
1: Anything? To and add I think on that? that's where we get into kind of these nuances and and this is why Emily and I are big proponents of going through the practicum level because if you are working with students and you want to be prescriptive and diagnostic and you're working in an intervention or a therapy level you need to be able to use your scope in sequence and to be able to scaffold as needed and mm. that requires you to be diagnostic to be prescriptive and Currently, at this point in time when this podcast is being recorded, there is not a research-based set scope and sequence. So there are suggested scope and sequence. And when you really lay them out side by side, they are very similar in their progression. Because we're laying those foundational skills and you're being systematic and you're going through and building those early foundational skills for reading. So when you lay them side by side, they do look very similar. You'll have a few little nuances that are going to shift between programs. But if you're looking at structured literacy programs, you will you will be able to see that um, cohesiveness that, it, that does exist.
0: Absolutely, yes. So we know that the thing that ties in, Uh, ties us all together is the set of principles okay Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be that one scope and sequence that we all follow. So just want to make that really clear. All right, Casey, we have this one here. And
1: and I think that this, you know, our, this conversation about the scope and sequence is, is perhaps one of the reasons why this next question comes up quite often. So as people are embarking in trying to learn more about Orton-Gillingham and trying the approach and trying to learn more about structured literacy, there's this, Idea that it is just phonics. And if we really look at structured literacy and we look at the elements within structured literacy and we look at the principles of Horton Gillingham, you can see that OG is and structured literacy are much, much more than phonics. That is just one of the elements. So if we're thinking about this, right, we have this big umbrella term of structured literacy that was coined by the International Dyslexia Association, and that was created to describe effective reading instruction that's vital for students with dyslexia, but is also beneficial to all. Mm -hmm. And so when we're looking at these components, we need to understand that it is much more than phonics. It is going to include phonology, right, a study of the sound structure of our spoken language. Um, And that phonemic awareness is central to phonology. It's going to include sound symbol correspondence. That's usually what people think of when they're talking about phonics. It is going to include work with syllables, understanding and applying the six syllable types, syllable division rules um, to really assist with both decoding and encoding or reading and spelling. We also address morphology. Understanding the working with the smallest units of meaning in our language. And we really talk about syntax and semantics where we're talking about language and we're talking about comprehension. So when we think of OG, it is much, much more than phonics.
0: Right. We we like to refer to OG as supporting all aspects of language, mm-hmm. language development is more than just phonics. And as Casey had, had mentioned, you know, all those things. I mean, we even incorporate things like handwriting in there yeah. and written output. Mm-hmm. We are able to address vocabulary instruction within the words that we are teaching. There is and just be, and yeah, all the components. <laughs> all <Yeah>. the components. <laughs>
1: And, you know, the International Dyslexia Association, they have a quote and, and it's, you know, to ensure that all children have access to effective reading instruction, we must ensure that their teachers have both the deep content knowledge and specific teaching experience to teach these elements according to these principles, right? That we're being right. systematic and cumulative, that we're having that
0: explicit instruction, that we're being diagnostic, and so I just want to direct everyone back again. So if we're thinking about structured literacy and how OG is language-based, mm-hmm. then really check out those knowledge and practice standards on the IDA's website, because that's really going to just map out what we should be looking for when choosing particular programs, maybe for for schools and districts and things like that. So really important. And then the other thing I know we keep bringing this up is that OG is prescriptive and diagnostic. Mm-hmm. And I would love to just stress that becoming an educator that acknowledges and supports and nurtures that those principles takes a great deal of time. It's not something that really develops overnight. It's really developed with First of all, with really helpful teaching from whatever supervisor you may have in your OG Mm -hmm. training, but also comes through where you learn even more through the work with your students in your practicum. But it just takes really years to look at. I I mean, I find myself just still learning more from my students Mm -hmm. all the time and seeing, okay, in this moment, what do they need? And it's that thoughtful decision-making yeah, in those moments and going forward that just, it takes time to develop.
1: It does. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think as we see this big wave and this big push for the science of reading to be implemented in schools, which we know is, is vital, right? Yeah. I think we have to keep in mind especially for those decision makers in your school, that it's not a quick fix or a silver bullet to teaching reading, that it's going mm-hmm. to take a great deal of time and investment in providing your teachers with proper training and ongoing support. I, It breaks my heart when I hear teachers say that you know they're just given a manual and that's it, or they attend a one-day training. We have to do better. We have to provide our teachers with support because this is a journey, and it and as Emily said, it takes time. And I know firsthand, you know, the impact that teacher and education, um, teacher and parent education and support can make with our students. So I really hope that decision makers out there understand that that very important step of doing the ongoing support that is necessary for
0: our teachers. That is critical. Give providing the um, ongoing support. Mm-hmm. And that is going to greatly improve your outcomes. Yeah. Not just for your students, but for your teachers as well. Okay. Yep. Um, <laughs> all right. Number five. We're number five. Number five. All right. all right. Number five. I've heard. So here's a question. I've heard Orton Gillingham is multisensory. Isn't that just using sand, paint, and shaving cream to trace letters? <laughs> So, we would love to just sort of talk about multisensory instruction, and Casey's going to get into addressing that. So, when we think about multisensory instruction, we commonly use a, a term we commonly refer to as the language triangle, mm-hmm. where we are addressing multi senses. So the you know seeing, feeling, hearing, touching. It doesn't necessarily mean that we have to be using those senses with tools like sand or paint or shaving cream, although those may be sort of like fun for engagement and so forth, or create more of just a tactile surface, but we are want to stress that multisensory instruction is also going to be heightening a child's awareness Mm -hmm. to things like their mouth formation with like lips, teeth, and tongue. So when we're doing proper mouth formation for sound production, that's multisensory teaching as well. So um, this is not just like here, let's use some color-coded sticky notes and um, that's multisensory teaching. It's a lot more in depth than that.
1: It really is. And one of the things kind of going back to the sand tray piece. One of the things that I sometimes see is I'll see people using sand trays, but then they're using a pencil or a paintbrush in the sand. Right. The, the purpose of the sand is to have that tactile kinesthetic movement and that feel on the fingertip. So right. again, knowing why we're using different pieces and how that's actually aiding in building these neural connections, I think is really important. One of the things, if we're people may ask, well, is there really any research behind multi-sensory instruction? Yeah. And I think we, you know, if we, if we go to the researchers, if we remember that using multimodal instruction or that multi-sensory instruction, it's very hard to tease out certain aspects of that. And from my understanding, researchers have kind of under, they're under an agreement that we know multisensory instruction works. So it, People are not necessarily researching those components, right? So there is, you know, neuroscience really lends theoretical support for use of multisensory instruction based on the way that memory works. So there is a quote from Farrell and Sherman saying that, quote, it is easier to integrate multiple sources of information during learning when the material is physically integrated auditorily and visually than when information is presented to each modality separately. And that's from Masave, Lo, and Sweller from 1995. So these multi-sensory experiences with linguistic units when we're teaching reading and spelling can really activate more circuitry during language learning than if we're only using one
0: singular sensory experience. And if we go back to- to our interview with dr erica warren where we were learning about working memory and executive function she really went into a great discussion about the importance of multisensory teaching mm-hmm. to support those two areas for children so and we know our children who have dyslexia often have those additional challenges with working memory and executive function. So by incorporating multi-sensory approach to their teaching, this just helps to solidify everything. So definitely check back. That was in season one with Dr. Erica Warren. I'm and it, sorry, I don't remember the number. <laughs> no, I
1: don't either. And, and yeah. it's, I think important for us to understand that, you know, when we are using multi-sensory approach, we're engaging multiple areas of the brain So we're having, you know, these complex connections among the areas Mm -hmm. are then engaged. And it's, you know, highly specialized and widely distributed when we're using those multisensory networks. And so it is important, I think, for teachers and practitioners to explicitly teach the structure of our language, to engage in multiple senses, and to promote reading success by making sure that we're doing both of
0: those things. Right. Right and we in the og world know that when we're using multisensory instruction we are strengthening those neural pathways so just to create stronger connections so if we're if they're using multiple senses simultaneously right. then that is the strength of the approach one of the strengths
1: right and i'm going to yeah. take a sidebar here and because we could probably have a whole episode all about visual auditory and kinesthetic learning, but right. um, If we're talking about, right. Those multimodal things, some things are multimodal teaching, right? Some of the strategies that we can use. Okay. Visually, right. We can look at our mouth. As Emily said, look at the position, those articulatory features, look at a card with the letter and the keyword. Those are visual stimuli. Look at the printed word to identify vowel sounds and the number of syllables identifying base words, prefixes, suffixes, Mm -hmm. all of those are going to engage the visual component. If we're thinking about auditory, right? Maybe discriminating the sounds and spoken words, say a keyword and sound. So we're doing at least two of these at the same time, right? Kinesthetic, arranging letters in alphabetical order, using tokens to segment sounds when you're using your altonin boxes, feeling the movement of those articulatory gestures building words with syllable cards and then tactile, right? Feeling maybe like the airflow and the voice on voice off. So thinking out beyond the sand tray is, I guess, is my big thing. I want you to take away when we're talking about multisensory, I want you to move beyond the sand tray and to really think and be mindful of how are you pulling in multiple senses to
0: really build those neural pathways in the brain. Okay. And you know what, maybe we could do a whole episode called Beyond the sand tray. I love that idea. All right. Thank you. And so now let's see. I the, Here's the next one. Isn't structured literacy just for kids with dyslexia? I hear this quite a bit. And so we know that, and we can even refer maybe to... Uh, Nancy Young's Ladder of Reading and Writing, when she has, that is a graphic which shows that a structured literacy approach benefits the majority of the children in your classroom. So remember, helps most, harms no one, right? That that whole scenario. So structure, a structured literacy approach really is what we know thus far, according to the research, what is going to benefit most children in your classroom, and not just for kids with dyslexia? So, when we look at what a structured literacy approach is, it's components of language. Once again, so looking at phonemic awareness and phonics, but also, you know, our our fluency, our vocabulary, our grammar and syntax, written. Uh, written expression. So all of those pieces that are coming into play that are supporting language, oral and written language. We have known for years that Orton Gillingham has helped many, many people, not just children, people, kids and adults with dyslexia become uh, readers. And now we're finding out Through many more research studies that are out there, that the things that we were doing with the children that had dyslexia people also benefit many, many other people that may not have dyslexia. So, I encourage you once again there's a great article on what structured literacy is on the IDA website. If you want to go there or even check out like Reading Rockets, I direct a lot of people to that website. There are many articles out there with information about what a structured literacy approach looks like okay
1: and I, I think another question to kind of piggyback on this when i hear you know people saying oh well, structural literacy is just for students with dyslexia or i will hear people i'll say this structured literacy is just for students with low ses and mm. that is just fundamentally not true. And I think that that may speak to some of our implicit biases that we may hold if if that's what we're kind of thinking. Because if we go back to what structured literacy is, it's laying those necessary foundational pieces that we know students need, all students need to be effective readers and writers.
0: Right. And recognizing that we all learn to read, right? Yes. With this uh with this one method here. Of course, with some, you know, our brains do it this one way, but for mm-hmm. some kids it takes a little bit longer, right? Okay. <laughs> so and it's important to recognize that. Okay. Yeah. Now <laughs> I'm sorry, Casey. Wanted to no, I was just
1: gonna say it is, right? We we all right. learn how to read the same way. Right. And Depend
0: so. and that it's you know, doesn't matter like what background what our backgrounds are. Correct. So, and we're not addressing someone that may have like a traumatic brain injury, obviously that's going to be different. Right. Right. Okay. So let's see
1: what I was going to say, Emily, I think that that last part, when people may mention, you know, structured literacy, just being for particular groups of children, which we know is not true. I think sometimes that may be rooted in misconception that structured literacy is boring and that they want to have it look different or to feel different for students. And again, if you have sat in a room that is doing structured literacy and doing it well, it is a fun, lively place where kids are excited about being able to read, right? right. And yeah, we don't love things that are hard for us. And, and we love things when when it makes sense, if you, you know, and that's what structured literacy does. It provides the pieces for kids to make sense of the words on the page.
0: Right. And, you know, we know that when we're using an Orton Gillingham supported le- lesson plan or format, then that is following a structured approach, right? It's very systematic instruction. Mm-hmm. And so people think when we're using a systematic approach that it's very teacher directed. And that really isn't the case when you really watch what an Orton-Gillingham lesson looks like. Um, Children should be doing the majority of the talking, actually, Mm -hmm. um, within the confines of an OG lesson. Children are active in the learning. Right. We Through our, what we always refer to, and we have a whole episode on this, on the gradual release of responsibility. Mm -hmm. So yes, we have a very systematic and explicit approach to teaching, but our students are actively involved in that learning process, no matter where that step is in the gradual release. So that misconception that OG is dry and it's boring, and there are all these rules that are just arbitrary, that really is, once again, that is a misconception if we truly are looking very closely at what the routine of an Orton-Gillingham lesson is. As Casey said, kids are active and very engaged in that whole learning process. So that is just, you just want to put that out there. That I know I still, (laughs) I sometimes still hear that one. All right. Oh boy, here comes, we have two more big ones and these are sort of meaty. So-
1: So So one, yeah, one question we may hear is that, you know, asking why aren't there any peer reviewed research studies done on the efficacy of OG?
0: Okay. So we do hear this question quite a bit. We hear it in social media groups. Mm -hmm. Okay. We, so OG, once again, is an approach, right? It follows a set of principles. Some of them being, once again, prescriptive and diagnostic instruction. So, when we follow that approach to intervention with our students, what one student needs is not going to look the same as what another student needs at that given time. And so, to have any type of peer reviewed research study in that way, then you would have to have a cohort where everybody was doing pretty much the same thing, following The exact lesson plan format and structure every single time with that cohort. And we cannot carry that out if we are using a prescriptive and diagnostic approach. We do know that there is research on the use of a multi sensory approach to learning Mm -hmm. that is effective and valuable for students. But no, that is really one of the reasons why there has not been one done. Now, the common cry is, oh, I wish there was one. But now if you could just sort of like get in your shoes once again, into the shoes of who Dr. Orton was and and Anna Gillingham and what they were advocating for and what their prescription to instruction should look like, then I think that we sort of are a little more grounded and understand why this thus far has not happened. Now, that being said, can we do a peer-reviewed research study on an Orton-Gillingham-based program? Sure, you could, because everybody would have a manual and a specific scope and sequence and, mm-hmm. and a certain training. So you could do that with a particular cohort. Right. So that's yeah, I
1: mean. and I think that's really where you have to understand that we have the Orton-Gillingham principles and we have the Orton-Gillingham rep- approach and then different programs have used their own application of the principles of Orton-Gillingham within their programs. So you will see from program to program, you're going to see some commonalities, but then you may also see some things where it differs. And so with, you know, you we can certainly have reviews on programs, but if we're just isolating out OG,
0: oh, no, yeah, because it's an approach. So hopefully that helps to clear up a little bit of the, of the confusion out there about research studies on OG. Yeah. All right. And then question nine. So here we are. We've we've gone through nine big questions, and before we get into this one, we just really hope that you will share this episode with people who are curious about OG who may be maybe thinking of becoming trained in it or who may have some misunderstandings. The other people you may want to think about sharing it with is maybe some families. Maybe there are families out there that you work with that are interested in learning about Orton Gillingham and maybe having some intervention done with their child, but they've never, they don't really know what it's all about. Share this episode with them and this I think will be very, very helpful. So let's get on to question nine. And that is, I keep hearing a lot about speech to print programs. Does OG follow a speech to print model? All right. So here we are at the point in this season, we're in the fall of 2022. So if you happen to be listening to this episode and it's like maybe five years from now, this is the current climate that we are in right now is that we are he- people are hearing more about particular programs that are speech to print or sound to print you might hear that as that terminology as well and so people are curious as they should be because you know we're we're all talking about the science of reading too and does og follow speech to print So when we talk about particular programs, we do want to be really clear about that. I also want to to just put this out there. Any program, speech to print or not, that may put a specific guarantee to success or progress within a certain time frame is something that we should be wary of. And why? Because when we're talking about people with dyslexia or may need reading intervention, maybe they don't even have dyslexia, just need, you know, small group intervention, by placing a time frame or a guarantee on when they're going to make progress really is not honoring where they are in their learning and foundational skills. Would you agree with that, Casey?
1: Yes, I agree. Yeah. So we just You're- want to
0: put that out first. But when we talk about uh, a speech to print model. We in Casey and I really don't think that it's either one or the other. Like you're either on the camp of speech to print or you're either in the camp of print to speech. <laughs> I don't know, Casey, you want to go for that and then I'll go, go further.
1: I was just going to say, yeah, all the, you know, Orton Gillingham based programs that I've taught have always included both. You do. Speech-to-print, we have articulatory features. We begin with the speech sounds first. We link them to the letter representations. So the programs that I teach are speech-to-print and print-to-speech. We use both within my lessons.
0: Right. So the, the short answer is yes, it does. But yes, we are interchangeable in that because we know that when we're looking at the way our brain reads words and looks at written words on a page, there are points in the lesson plan that are supporting that whole process. So if we look at the beginning of an Orton-Gillingham lesson plan, in some training programs, will refer to them as associations and Casey's refer to them as linkages. They mm-hmm. both, for the most part, mean the same thing. Yeah. But when I speak to it, I speak about associations. So, when we are doing, say, a card drill, okay, that is directly addressing the word form area of our brain. So, that's the occipital temporal lobe uh, or area of our brain. And so, we're working on automatic responses and building automaticity there. And we're, at, so we are putting a visual symbol to the, and we have the phonology attached to that. Right. So, and then when we get further into the, Gillingham lesson plan, where we may be introducing new material, then that's in having word analysis and phonology. Then we're moving into the area called the temporal parietal lobe, mm-hmm. and OG and really hits different areas of the brain from the different points of the lesson plan. Beautifully, I will say we can attach an area of the brain being addressed to each form, each part of the lesson plan format. So when we get into a section that where we, where it's called what says, okay. And yes, we know some people are, are getting sort of hung up on the letters don't say sounds that is sort of like a nuance to us. Right. Casey.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just have my, we say, you know, M is red mm, or M is spelled
0: M right. Yeah. Yeah, and so we're looking at articulation but also word analysis and that is addressing the Broca's area of the brain, so the mm-hmm. inferior frontal gyrus. And sorry if I'm getting into like a lot of brain terms right now, but I think it's important because OG does support um, brain-based teaching. It does. And then as we get yeah. And then as we get closer to really looking at sound symbol, but as we get for, further up to the frontal lobe, that is where all of our executive function is coming into play and really our written output all through. So we get into dictation and that portion, and then get into oral reading and things like that. So Orton Gillingham, I know I'm sort of summarizing this really, really briefly, goes by associations. So we start with symbol to sound, and then that's in an oral format. We go into sound to symbol and oral spelling. So that's speech to print. And then we go into association three, sound to symbol, but using written spelling, using the SOS strategy, which stands for simultaneous oral spelling, which is a multi-sensory approach to using you know speech to print, writing, and mapping sound to symbol on paper. And then we go back to association one with oral reading. So whether that's, you know, your decodable text or even just, you know, a trade book that you might be using maybe with older students that are ready to transition to that. Mm -hmm. So I know I've gone very quickly through that because, you know, this episode is not an Orton-Gillingham training, but it's just to provide you with the, just an outline briefly with the way an Orton-Gillingham is, lesson is structured and how it addresses the different parts right. of the brain. I don't know, Casey, and, how did I do? How no, do you, you do? Great. I agree. Yeah. yeah. I think the big
1: takeaway, right. Is that Orton Gillingham is really going to hit on all of those different Just zones it. of the brain. And that when we are talking about, you know, like different programs will, will come at it a different way, but it will have all of those components. So like the program I teach, I start first with the speech sounds and then link to to the spelling representations. But what we're doing is we are, we're doing, we're hitting on all of those areas of the brain and we're really creating these convergent zones so that we're we're touching on everything. And I think that is a really big takeaway that we need to have with Orton Gillingham is that we are doing what we know is needed in the brain to get the information to stick. And if you're interested in learning more about the brain in season one, and I can't remember which episode now, Um, but in season one, we had a whole episode all about the brain, because that is certainly a piece that I know Emily and I are very passionate about, but we also talk about that with our students. And I think it's important for them to understand, hey, when we're doing this part, this is what's happening in our brain. When we're doing this part, we're addressing this part of our brain so that they are part of that learning. They're part of buying in and understanding why we're doing all of these different components of an Orton-Gillingham lesson, right? So check that episode out (laughs) if you haven't.
0: And I just like to say that by addressing the format of the Orton-Gillingham lesson plan, it's just also to solidify the notion that this is not just phonics that this is also language based and we're incorporating oral and written expression but all components of language and sure we didn't have enough time maybe to go into like every single thing we do in an Orton-Gillingham lesson plan but we are this is not just addressing phonics this is addressing a lot more than that and because we know from our brain research: What areas of the Orton-Gillingham lesson plan are are hitting which areas? Mm-hmm. Then that is speaking to a child's intellect, right? And is emotionally sound, so that when we are supporting the needs of our children, not just academically, but from a social-emotional perspective, we know that we are addressing all of that. And as we know, this uh, podcast episode is always trying to bring that linkage back to the social emotional needs of the child. So we spent quite a bit of time talking about question nine, but it's because I think there's a lot of discussion about it based on communication that is given from the developers of programs that have their understanding, their research, and that is their perspective. Whereas for us, where we have been extensively trained in Orton-Gillingham and have been using it for a long, long time, we have the gift of not only having that training, but also having the opportunity to see all of these new programs that come out and learn about them and really see, hmm, are they truly following a structured literacy approach, are they going to support our children who have dyslexia and who really may benefit from a very structured approach, who may not really benefit from being taught all of the grapheme representations all at once because that would be really big cognitive overload for them? We really want to, once again, speak from the role as um, interventionists and therapists, and what we know works best for the children that we work with. And we know that if you are listening, cognitive load and working memory are very, very big concerns of ours when we are working with children, and we are always very mindful of the way information is presented. Casey, what do you think?
1: No, I agree. And I, I think being in the setting that, that we work in as, you know, interventionists and and therapists and that we, we often have students that have double deficits. So that working memory component layered on top of dyslexia is often a significant hurdle for our students. So we have to be very mindful and I'm always, I am always researching and looking and, and finding ways to improve my my work, and I think that that's really important to do. But I also want to make sure that it is rooted in research, and that it provides opportunities for my for myself to scaffold for my students when needed, to extend when it's needed, and to you know continue to move forward our learning. And I think you know coming back to the principles of Orton-Gillingham
0: really helps to anchor our work. Yes. Absolutely. So we are uh, going to wrap up today. And before we do, we just want to remind you, please take a look at the show notes that we have for this episode. We'll include links and definitely go to togetherinliteracy.com because we always have a blog post that accompanies the episodes that we discuss, and we'll be sharing even more information there, and that way you can uh, pass it along, um, give it another listen. We took quite a bit of time to address many questions, so we hope that that really clears up any kind of misconception or misunderstandings that there may be surrounding Orton-Gillingham. And We also want to encourage you once you do look at the blog post for something that Casey and I are going to be providing. So, if you look at the end of the blog post, then we'll be sharing a little link that you can click on, and that will provide a coupon to both Casey and I, both of our online stores. So, we would love for you to check that out. We both have teachers pay teachers stores and we'll share what those are but guess what we also have stores on our own websites so Casey why don't we both share both of the stores that we have go ahead
1: sure all right so um, yeah I have um, my online teacher by teacher shop is called the dyslexia classroom and that is my website as well so the dyslexiaclassroom.com
0: yes excellent And my Teachers Pay Teachers store is Emily Gibbons, the Literacy Nest. And then, of course, then the website is the Literacy Nest. Just to clarify, the coupon will be able to be used in our online stores and not on Teachers Pay Teachers. We as Teachers Pay Teachers sellers are not allowed to give out like little personalized coupons, those are provided by the actual marketplace. So, but but good news, we can make our own coupons for our online stores. <laughs> so that's why we wanted to just sort of take some time to spread the word to let you know that we're also we also have another way for you to shop if you're interested. And we really really appreciate the support. So once again, uh, we have the Dyslexia Classroom and the Literacy Nest. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we will see you next time. Bye, everyone.
1: Thank you so much for tuning in to the Together in Literacy podcast today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a positive review and subscribe to the podcast. Each comment
0: means a great deal to us. And if you have any questions for us that you would like answered on the Together in Literacy podcast, please contact us at support at togetherinliteracy.com. Be sure to visit the website, www.togetherinliteracy.com
1: for show notes, downloads, and goodies.
0: Thank you for helping us spread the word about the Together in Literacy podcast.